Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to another week of Chasing Frets, and I'm joined this week by Joe Gore. Hey, happy to be here and talk to our remarkable guest. Yeah, our guest this week is Daniel Donato, um, kind of a, a a young country guitar ambassador to the internet. Um, and the other thing he's a big ambassador of is the music of the Grateful Dead, which is what we're talking about today. And, and when I threw out this topic to you, Joe, Joe, you gave me fair warning that you weren't always haven't always been the biggest fan of the Dead. <laughs> uh, um. Well, uh, you know, I think I think you and Daniel make a make make a powerful case. I don't I don't hear it myself, but you know, sometimes you, you sometimes you. I'm a San Franciscan, and sometimes you you know, sometimes you don't give adequate respect to what comes from your home turf. Is it is that kind of what it was? It was just like you've been around it, you know, your whole. Like, I am not going to badmouth you know? the Grateful Dead in front of an audience of podcasters who tuned into something with the word Grateful Dead on it. <laughs> um, and and as you'll as you'll hear. Uh, Daniel makes a very, very passionate, um, you know, case. And that, I, I'm sorry, not even so much making a case, but just his, his his passion for the music and how it inspired him. And he shows us front and center that I, you know, took this idea and I took it to this other place. So obviously it's been an endless source of uh, ideas and inspiration for, you know, this young player who, as he'll mention during the course of the interview, was born the year Jerry died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, so we're going to go deep into the Grateful Dead. We're going to talk about influences and playing and and even a couple recommendations for where to start if you are kind of maybe just a little interested in getting into it. So uh, we're going to hop right into this uh, conversation about the Grateful Dead with uh, Daniel Donato. Hey, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Chasing Freds. How are you doing, man? Oh, fantastically well. How are y'all doing? <laughs> we're doing so good, and this is so so much fun to catch up with you. And the topic we're going to hit today is uh, our mutual love for the Grateful Dead, and we're going to wow. shoehorn Joe into this as well, even though he might not be as dyed in the wool of a fan as you and I are. Pun intended. Uh-huh. Well, I'm the one. I'm the one here who's old enough to have had a copy of Working Man's mm-hmm. Dead when it was new. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm going. I'm going to. I'm going in open minded. I want you know any any guitarists who play as well as you guys. I take their opinions. Um, at least I listen to them very carefully. <laughs> and yeah. Daniel, I'm stoked to meet you. I've so enjoyed your videos and the work you did on Jason's record and your album. And Thank you, an Joe. an admirer from afar, and um, it's really cool to meet you. Likewise, likewise. Thank you very much. So you actually, you had a, a new copy of Working Man's Dead in 1971? I was a little kid. It was more, more like my cousins, but yeah, I'm wow. old enough to have been listening to this stuff. That is beautiful. Um, and they and I think uh, I just heard that they're putting out the 50th anniversary, like super deluxe edition. 
Yeah, that's been out. And or then American they're putting Beauty. Out, I'm sorry, American Beauty is coming out. Yeah, and they yeah. did a thing recently called Angel Share, um, which is all the B-roll and outtakes of them figuring out the arrangements. And uh, for everyone who's listening to the podcast format and likes this kind of uh, high conscientious a- a- approach to music, the Grateful Dead cast, the, every episode so far has been yeah. dedicated to, mostly every episode, to a specific song off American, off Working Man's Dead. Which is wild. It's a it's, very insightful and inspiring dive into the music. Yes. So after you're done listening to this, go and check that out. Mm. So I want to talk about, I, I've heard you tell a story about you having the school teacher who hooked you up with a bunch <laughs> of bootlegs. I've heard you tell a story several times. But I want to take it back to the one time that you and I kind of really connected on this music. And yes. my band was coming through town. Uh, we we're staying the night at John Bollinger's house. Oh. Typical band, typical band hang. We're all just crashing wherever we can find room in Bollinger's house. We invite Andy Ellis over. We invite you over, right. and instruments are brought out, and we start yeah. playing. And very quickly, it veers to playing some Grateful Dead tunes. <laughs> and that was, and it was just you know six or seven of us, and we're just passed around solos. You know we played shakedown we played friend of the devil and what it kind of dawned on me that night is how those tunes mm. are starting to become standards yeah in, in certain the circles real. much like all the things you are stella by starlight mm-hmm. and so i wanted to ask you when you had this appreciation growing up that this teacher hooked you up with these bootlegs when did you start to really connect with their music on stage so it was then I started connecting with the music. There, the Grateful Dead has been in my life. I, I came to find out even this year um, when I was, you know, three years old. Um, when my mom was pregnant with me, she, she followed the dead. And um, when I was born, when we were living in New Jersey, my uncle who was watching me while my mom worked her day job and night job, would uh, we were living on the beach. And he would go and take me on the beach and play tapes. And I would just dance. This two-year-old, three-year-old kid. Um, I had no idea. And um, the first three albums my dad ever gave me when I first started guitar was uh, American Beauty, um, Led Zeppelin box set, which I guess is more than an album in itself, and then uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan Greatest Hits. And it was just like, for American Beauty, that was kind of an outlier out of those two because it is guitar intensive, but it's not. And that was the first like clean guitar tone I had heard. And even then, the, my kind of barometer towards timbre and tone and intention and dynamic of music always leans to the more psychedelic, uh, peaceful, not so like, look at the bulge in my jeans kind of approach to guitar. Mm-hmm. And um, I love that. You can just really hear that Jerry did his homework in a way that was very American sounding. Um, you know what I mean? It's very folky and uh, very major bass with a lot of chromaticism. Um, I just love that. Uh, it just innately, before I can even understand what the quantitative parameters of it were, as I'm translating now. Uh, but so what happened was with Mr. Ragland, uh, my teacher, uh, he, ga- he, he gave me this uh, th- over 150 shows of the dead in CD format. Hmm. And it was right when I started driving. And so when I was gigging every day, about five nights a week, driving about an hour from Spring Hill, Tennessee, where I lived, uh, to Nashville, Tennessee, where I played. 
uh, where a girlfriend should have been in the passenger seat. There were all these Grateful Dead bootlegs. And that happened for about two years. Uh, five days a week, four or five days a week, I was listening to these, these records. Uh, Dick's Picks, uh, JGB, uh, random non-official released uh, shows, right? And I was able to approach it without anybody telling me, like, hey, man, this Scarlet Fire ain't so good. It's just like no one was telling me. I was doing on my own accord, my own barometer, which is the best way to create and, and also consume. And um, that, when it started hitting me, the moment that it really hit me was from the first disc on the first song, was when they uh, kicked off with the song Big River. Which is a Johnny Cash song. So where I was playing in Nashville was a place called Robert's Western World. Jason, as you know, because we've mm-hmm. spent many a night there. Oh, yeah. Um, the home of traditional country music. And it's been a literal portal on this earth for country music since the Grand Ole Opry opened. Uh, Roberts is one of the two original venues down on Broadway that has been there since the get-go. And now there's over 64 stages on that street, but Roberts is the one place. Roberts is also the place where Willie Nelson bought Trigger. So there's something cosmic Wait, happening. So yes. Ro- he bought it at Roberts? Yeah, because Roberts used to be showbud Steel Guitar Company, oh, okay. which is where Shot Jackson Whoa. and Buddy Emmons invented the pedal steel in that building. Perfect. Insane, yeah. right? And that's also where Willie bought Trigger. And it's where Hank Williams would go after the Offrey because it's you walk out the back door of the Ryman and you can right walk there. right into Roberts. Yeah. So we were playing Johnny Cash songs in our sets every night. And I was like, I know this song. But they, these people, they obviously are not from the country, but they get the lyrics because they're telling the story and it feels right. And the guitar is beautiful. And the instrumentation is out, outlandishly uh, unique and really well executed. And they're jamming in a way that sounds like they did their homework again. And it just it sounds beautiful and strategic. And it was very much the way that we played downtown. We were jamming all the time because we would play for four hours at a time. Uh, we had to. It was part yeah. of the, uh, the gig and, and union rules. Um, so it's just like, I kind of understood all of a sudden that you can actually take country music and tell a story, not only with the lyrics, but with the instrumentation in a way that's really reflexive in a way that also you can go for, you know, seven minutes on a one, four, five, one, two, four, five song. Um, so that was it for me was hearing disc one track one. I forget what show it was, but it was big river with the grateful dead. And it was just like, blew my mind. Um, it really did. It it started everything for me really in the way that I still think today, uh, was from that moment on. Yeah. So it was Johnny Cash who took the Grateful Dead and what you were doing on stage in Roberts and connected them. In some way, man. And it was just, um, it was hearing Jerry starting solos. And if you go to Don Rich, who played mm-hmm. with Buck Owens, Mixolydian, a lot, of, a lot of major, a lot of minor, with some chromaticism tied in there. And that's what Jerry was doing. And then as I've developed and you know become more intrigued and um, higher thinking in the way I approach music, at least trying to be, um, I get now that Jerry was wildly inspired by country and Western music and it made total sense. But at the time I could hear it. I didn't even know, uh, where his footsteps came from, but so it's wild, man. It really, yeah. They're just like my lighthouse of music. 
Do you have a very favorite bootleg? Like if you had to do that commute with only one disc for uh, two years, which one would you pick? Um, I like Dick's Picks Volume 18 um, from Iowa. Um, oh, I think Iowa Dane City? Ten- I, I was I right. I think so. Yep. Mm-hmm. It was that. Uh, they start with Bertha. Yep. Any show that starts with Bertha, I tend to love. Um, we start our shows with Bertha too, live. There's just something about it that is just like uh It's this bubbling thing. Like yeah. you know, when you start that, just playing the chords. It's, oh. it's almost. I mean, it, it's it's a riff, I guess you could say. But he's basically just strumming the chords in a very rhythmic, cent- very in a very specific way. And just yeah. by strumming those chords in that way, the energy starts to bubble up. I call it the hippie strum. Oh. Because uh, check it out. So, Bertha. All right, now let's, let's speed it up a little. All my brothers. Let's move it up to A. So I think Jerry really, on in the most rhythmic way possible, that is the psychedelic, positive, happy-minded. Um, I don't know all the adjectives to describe it, but Bertha really is like the the nexus of that whole of that whole vibe, which is just hundreds of songs. And you slow it down, you put it in F, and add a funk beat to it, and it's back on the train by Fish. Yeah. Whoa. Come on. Yep. Okay. Yeah. See. The, the examples don't stop ending either. I, I posted that video on YouTube, the hippie strum, not p- trying to plug it. And um, people are like, yeah, man, it's also this song. I'm like, well, yeah, I've, it makes sense. You know, music is full of, um, uh, of themes that work from, from artist to artist, genre to genre. But yeah, to answer your, answer your question, Joe, uh, D- volume 18 Dick's Picks is really so fantastic. And also uh, to Terrapin. Uh, I, I think it was a 77 show. Mm-hmm. That one, I forget which one that one that date is though. I think usually when people ask me where to start, I said start at seventy-seven, and then you can either if you want more psychedelic, you go back in time, and if you want maybe more explore exploratory or danceable, you go forward in time. Wow! 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 Yeah! Wow! That's great. And then you know, nineties is kind of it's. I think you should be listening to them for at least three, four years before you start trying to approach 90s with a, with a clear headspace. <laughs> Explain, please. Well, you know, just in, in terms of who was on the crew at that time and how they were monitoring their sound and what Jerry was doing on a technical level, what Bobby was doing on a technical level, and um, what Phil was doing in his headspace at the time. And also having worked with Robin Ford on, on, on the recent record that we put out, he'd been good friends with Phil, you know, for decades. And... I'd come to find out that there was a lot of, you know, uh, personal indifference towards what was going on in the culture of the band at that time. And so you can kind of feel in the music. And then also when Brent Midland died, everything changed. Yeah. I mean, um, that was really, it's, it's almost hard to listen to those shows. I had, it, I also feel very crazy trying to insert any opinion here. Cause I died the, I was born the year Jerry died. So like, I don't really know, you know what I mean? But being com- coming from an outside perspective and also kind of um, helping carry on the torch of what they're doing now and turning people onto them all the time through social media, the 90s are indeed just a different kind of a, kind of a different thing. Um, 
It's not. The, I don't think the '90s are going to make a fan of anybody. Oh wow! I think you got to start somewhere yeah. earlier to get hooked, and then as your as your conscience needs more exploring, then you dip into the '90s. Because when Bruce Hornsby comes in, that has a whole other vibe to it. Or oh, yeah, those accordion? shows where Branford yeah. sits in, Branford Marsalis, oh. and and they take it way out. I mean. All day. Yeah. 16 minutes. <laughs> 16 minutes. No, I think it's fascinating to hear your take on it, Daniel, uh, even though you kind of never lived during prime uh, dead years because, you know, you're approaching it without the, um, you know, the history and the cultural associations of, mm. of my generation for better and worse. And you're just regarding it as abstract music that moves you in a particular way. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. So you talked about the hippie strum. Uh-huh. So we got to talk about Bobby's rhythm playing. Yeah, yeah. Because it's so it's such an underrated piece that that yeah. you can't really yeah. appreciate it until you almost like take it away sometimes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't know if you've checked out like the isolated rhythm parts on YouTube. Oh my god. Okay, <laughs> I'm so deep into those. Have you found the Jerry isolated parts on YouTube yet? Uh, I have, but I'm I'm but I feel like. Those are less revelatory to me because yeah. he's always kind of at the top of, you know, he's taking most of the solos. He's always, his playing is kind of at the top of the Sunday there. But or, hearing that where, live at the Greek isolated Bobby on the, on the Pepto-Bismol oh. is, is absurd. Yeah. So tell me what you kind of pick, pick, take away from Bobby's rhythm yeah. playing. So I'm starting a series on YouTube called Weird Chords, um, mm. W-E-I-R apostrophe D. Um, you know, which is, you know, a meditation on the Bob Weir approach to music in general. And, um, Bobby to me is my absolute, um, he's just my absolute when it comes to music. Like, uh, I've always loved his playing. I always will. The way that he incorporates, um, Roy Rogers, Sons of the Pioneers, um, 1940s, 1950s cowboy chords into, uh, the format of the Grateful Dead is un unparalleled. It's, beautiful and um the song choice that he would bring in it's just like it's the total seating he was like the original cosmic country guy and um so yeah the thing that i love about bob weir's approach to chords is that um he really was egoless in that he would allow the entire band to kind of blossom and then as you see his role in dead and company now it's much more authoritative but in the grateful dead it was a, it was its own thing and so it's like um bobby would never just play a g Bobby would play a a C shape a C shape G, you know. So it was very much caged bass, and then he would do great, uh, you know, for like um uh, uh like sus four substitutions, like in Casey Jones, like. And the way that it's just advanced enough for it to stick out, that song being only 12 tracks were being used, that it's really fast. Like, that's just enough of an advanced piece of harmony for it to stick out and make the whole song better. So it was never too outside for it to be like, well, what's that? 
but it wasn't never too inside for it to just be like rock and roll wall of sound noise and not in a glorious way like Phil Spector, but like in a Ramones way, which I don't really vibe with in a huge way. Mm-hmm. Um, is and very that's for sus. That's like a very gospel, gospel cadence. Yeah, I've never heard. I've never thought of it in that sense. But yeah, yeah, I think it's called a. Um, it's a plagal I think it's called cadence. A plagal cadence, right? Yeah, I, then, got, I went it, to music school. So am I right, Joe? Plagal cadence. It's well, it's kind of. <laughs> four, four to one. Yeah, is it technically, is, it's not really a cadence, but if it were a cadence, it would be plagal. Yeah. And then, um, and then a formal cadence is five to one, right? There's all sorts of. There's a lot of different cadence. Just means a, a place where the, you come to the conclusion of a musical phrase or idea. And, I it, and it resolves to the tonic, presumably. But also, you you know, you at the very beginning, you were talking about the, you know, the the upbeat, bright, major key, clean tone quality of the music. Yeah. And you know, of course, when you you know, and then you, when you were talking about the Bob Weir stuff, and you were talking about how he's playing, um, like barred, you know, C shapes. Yeah. You know, we're all we're all the open strings and hammer-ons and pull-offs all fall within the major key. It's not got the blues inflections like when you're playing, say, in an A shape or an A shape or an uh, E shape. And it just sort of, it's sort of uh, built built in happy. Oh wow, built in happy! Wow, it's really <laughs> efficient way to, to to go about it. I'm trying to take it even a step further, and so like, if you look at some of like those Bob Wills, um, or like Mama Try is a perfect example, like a, a country song that they would do. So like, um, first thing I remember knowing was that lonesome whistle blowing and a youngin's dream of growing up to ride. You could also go. First thing, uh, like first thing I remember knowing, that lonesome whistle blowing, and a youngin's dream of growing up to ride. On a freight train leaving town, not knowing where I'm bound, no one could change my mind, but Mama tried. And it's this nice. idea, you can just literally walk. that's kind of what Bobby was doing. And if you go back and listen to McCoy Tyner, that's what McCoy Tyner's doing all over the place. Um, so I, it seems like Bob was just able to really take his understanding of where he was adding value to the band and fulfill it to the utmost potential as opposed to getting in any way that like sonically, like you're never like, I I'm hearing too much of Bobby. You've never, I've never thought that at least. Mm-mm. Um, you know what I mean? So, uh, that's a beautiful thing if you're able to play, you know, one instrument your whole life and you, you don't ever become too much, you know. I can get so sick of hearing myself play sometimes. <laughs> did, 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 did Weir do those sort of walking things? Um, Not to that degree of that techni- that facile uh, technical thing. I think that's just part of my generation. You notice, like, pretty much everyone from mid-'90s onward, they, they, they play faster, much younger. And it's only getting more that way. And I think it's just because of the information overload that we are able to access at zero cost of entry, pretty much, right? Um, people are just playing amazing things at the age of nine years old now. Mm-hmm. When it comes to jam band music, I feel like there's two distinct camps the, 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 of fans. One, people who are there for the songs. Right. And one who are there for the jams. Yeah. Which one... It sounds like the songs are what brought you in more than the 26-minute Dark Stars. Yeah, man. I'm an interesting case. So, you know, being from Nashville, um, there's the cliche of the three chords and the truth. And um, I never thought of another way of life. 
um, until I heard of a, of, until I heard of jamming. Um, and I love jamming because I play guitar. Um, and I, I like a lot of guitar. You know, I got into guitar through guitar, guitar players, uh, act, like players that really did their homework and, and put in the hours and were very much technically proficient. And uh, I've always loved the technical proficiency. Um, the Grateful Dead really is I, the, the best of both worlds where they really do bring songs. Um, being from Nashville, again, it's just like, if, if you don't respect the song, uh, the city will have its way with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? You gotta understand the song is first. Uh, so I've always had that. And then uh, with jamming, it just is something I've always, I just, I think it's who I am as a person uh, and who I am as a, as a musician. And you combine that with my love for a technical ability on the instrument and loving practicing and really just getting lost in the music. A uh, 26 minute jam is a perfect place for someone who has that kind of mindset to, to indulge and, and do so in a way that's valuable to the listener. Um, if the listener's in that headspace and is wanting to consume it. And so the Grateful Dead will do both to you. Um, a perfect example, they'll go into uh, they do Dark Star, one of the most infamous jams, and they go into El Paso by Marty Robbins, one of the best-selling country songs in history. Um, it was number one for something like 12 weeks. Um, just an amazing song. And, um, yeah, great guitar playing on that track too. Great Grady guitar. Martin on that, on that, you know, playing, uh, on all. So Marty Robbins, two biggest songs produced by Chet Atkins at RCA studios were cut on the same day in the same session. Um, and it's at the same studio that Dave Cobb works out of now. Hmm. So it's like, there's something in Nashville in certain buildings. It's real. And, as I get older and I play other places in the world and I come back to Nashville, I play a lot of places. Uh, there is something about certain buildings in Nashville, man, where there is a thing that's happening there. And I don't know why, but Robert's one of those places. RCA Studio A is one of those places. Uh, it's wild. Where are you at with all the modern Grateful Dead offshoots? Because so? our, mutu our mutual friend, Andy Ellis, big oh, yeah. Grateful Dead fan, he... When Dead and Company first came out, he he they came out. Some stuff popped up on YouTube. Like the next day, him and I were talking. He's like, "Jason, this is the thing that's getting me back into the Grateful Dead." Woohoo! And, and he's like OG Grateful Dead guy. You know, he yeah. was in college in the '60s. You yeah, know, the late man. '60s. So, but some people can be really split on. You know, is it really the Grateful Dead after July '95? No, it's not. I think it, you know, uh, absolutely no, it's not Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead was Jerry Garcia, Phil Lesh, Bob Weir, Bill and Nicky. And everyone else involved in the crew, obviously, right? You know, definitely it's not the Grateful Dead. But I'm not one to say. That's where I feel like I actually add a lot of value to the conversation. If I could ask the universe for anything, if the universe is listening in on this podcast, I would love to play in Den and Company one day with John Mayer. It'd be my absolute life dream if i could do that mm -hmm. um and o'teal bill and mickey and 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 jeff i mean that would just be and what song bertha i'd like to be in the band if that'd be something i could do sure but you're sitting in they're coming through town you're sitting in on one tune they have 200 songs they're like all right dealer's choice daniel What's i know every be? song man i'm telling you i could play the whole show i really could right now we sure but you know what we're cutting it down to one song daniel one you song pick. one song daniel um <laughs> Listen, Daniel, we got in We got in on a... Oprah wants us to come in and do one song. Oprah's yeah. coming back to television and she's having a one-song guest artist and you're somehow doing this. Um, 
Uh, Ber- yeah, Bertha, Tennessee Jed. A very Bobby heavy intensive song. I would love to do a very signature Bobby song. So maybe even um, saying a circumstance, estimated profit, um, you know, something like that. It, it also depends on the city. Like I'd like to do Ramble on Rose if it happens to be in New York. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Or uh, there's, uh, that's West a tough LA one fade away. I'd like to do uh, Bertha and the Good Lovin'. That's, that's what I'd like to do. See, now, now there you go. That's the way to do it because that could suck up a half an hour. Yeah, it depends on the show, right? right. That's that real. Could, that could that could chunk up a half an hour. <laughs> that well, would be my like utmost like. People don't like when you set like ridiculous goals and say things like that. But it's like I think about that. That's why I keep that poster back there every day. Um, like I try to every day spend time focusing on the Grateful Dead and listening to Bobby and and trying to think like Bobby all the time. What's uh, since we're since, since this is audio only, we can see you, but the listeners can't. What's the yeah. what is the poster? Oh yeah, so there's a poster behind me. Uh, through through good faith, somehow this year, uh, good karma, I was able to get two tickets to go see them in New Year's Eve in San Francisco, and um, it was the first time I had seen them since their first tour. And so I'm right up there on the rails, on the ground floor, you know, just like it, it blew my mind for two nights in a row, and uh, changed the way that I I think of myself and the way I think about music. Um, it had some serious, like seriously enlightening questions come to me, and. Um, so I keep that, I keep a little moment. It's a poster. They did a limited 300 run poster that came with uh, the, the, the VIP package of whatever it was, the ticket holders, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's cool, man. It, it's, and it's something I think about every day. I just try to put conscious energy into, in, into uh, lending myself to that project. I, I just love what Dead & Company is doing. I think it's one of the most beautiful things ever. And just in the general sense of how marketing and music and brands work, uh, the collaborative nature of how everything goes forward now is insane. Like you see it with brands all the time, people collaborating with, with influencers, quote unquote, whatever, right? People who have leverage on, on a, follower, a following stance, um, working with already established entities. Um, happens with Nike, uh, happens with Serial, and now it's happening with the Grateful Dead. And I think that's really beautiful. And that's why we see LeBron James wearing uh, Grateful Dead shirts now. And only the truth can stand the test of time. And clearly the Grateful Dead has stand the test of time. So they're only a sentiment of truth. Um, and so I, I'm just, I love it, man. I'm the biggest fan in the world. Well, that's a great way to end our, our first episode with you this week, Daniel. So uh, he's going to be back with us later this week for a couple more episodes. Thank so you. So stick around and we'll have more with Daniel Donato. Mm-hmm.